Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. He will save people to the uttermost ends of the earth. He will have a glorious church. He will have a church that triumphs. God is going to do it. God will keep his promise. He will have a glorious church. And there's the promise. How good are you at keeping promises? Good as long as it doesn't get uncomfortable for you? Good while you remember? We're only human, so we're not perfect at it, are we? Well, God is my word. When he makes a promise, you can be sure it will stand the test of time. And seeing God as the author of time itself, nothing escapes his attention. God made a promise to David in the Old Testament, and it has implications for us. Let's check it out with Dr. Corbett tonight, my covenant with David. All right, we're in, we're in Jeremiah chapter 33. This is a wonderful section in the book of Jeremiah because we, you can easily, um, you know, if, if Jeremiah was a, was a solid object and, and you took a silver hammer to it, went tap, it would fall into six very nicely divided sections. And the section that we're in now is, would be the section of the New Covenant. It's where Jeremiah is talking about the coming Messiah. He's talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant would be done away. The New Covenant would begin. He's, he's talking about a day where the, the, the house of Israel, which had been divided and in disunity, would, would come together under one banner and would be one again. He's talking about an era that, that he, as far as he was concerned, it would be a golden age. So this is a, it's, it's very easy to read chapter, uh, this section, chapter 33, through to about chapter 38, because it's glorious. It's just wonderful. And, and it started back in about 27 or so. And there's some very famous fridge magnet verses in this section as well. And one of the things we want to deal with today is when we look at some of these things that I, I, I kind of said are fridge magnet verses, I want to ask this question. When we see God's word refer to the promises I have made to you, I will fulfill. Are we to take the promises that God made to Israel and take them as our own? Can we do that? And that's a question. It's not, a, it's not an easy one immediately to answer. So we need to give a little bit of information on that one. And so when we read some of these things in the Bible, one of the, the best things you can do is don't just read a Bible verse. Don't just read a little section. Get it in its context. And so I think we need to do that. And this is one of the wonderful exercises that we're undertaking now as we go through the book of Jeremiah. This is part 94 today. So we, we're nearly halfway. And this is a, just a wonderful section. And, and, and hopefully you can see why... I think we should be reasonably excited about this. This is my covenant with David. David is a fascinating character. I, I think he, he exemplifies to uh, would-be leaders what it takes to be a leader. And, and I mean that in the sense of you can, you can learn lessons from what David did right, and you can also learn lessons from what David did wrong. And be warned. Be warned. So why is David called? In fact, he's, he's one of the, I think, only two men in the whole of the Bible that is called a man after God's own heart. And yet when you think about David, think about what he did. David killed people where God has expressly told him not to. Uh, I'm thinking of Uriah, the Hittite. Uh, and in fact, as we're, while we're going down the Uriah pathway, David is somebody who committed adultery 
David is somebody who feigned as it pretended to be mad, so he deceived. He was a de- so let's get this right. He was a lying, deceiving, murdering adulterer. This man is called a man after God's own heart. Isn't there hope for us all? Do you get that? There's hope. Now, why did he go from that to being a man after God's own heart? Because David learned that God is a forgiving God. David learned, and we read this in Psalm 51, where David cries out, Oh God, wash me clean. Oh God, forgive me. And he prescribes the, the you know, hyssop and, and, and this kind of thing, the very things that were prescribed to a leper, the one considered the most unclean in society. And he said that's what his sin had done to him, made him the most unclean. Oh God, wash me, cleanse me, renew in me a right spirit. And the Psalms aren't arranged in the order they were written. Because the next psalm after Psalm 51 in David's mind is Psalm 32. Where David has prayed Psalm 51. Forgive me, O God, I've blown it. And this is after he's orchestrated the death of Uriah the Hittite. The husband of the wife that Bathsheba that David had committed adultery with. And as David comes before God and cries out to God for forgiveness, he experiences the forgiveness of God. And he says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Oh, the joy of having sins forgiven. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Wow. And after this time, David is in the temple worshipping. And you remember Bathsheba was pregnant, the, the fruit of their adulterous relationship. And David is there seeking God because suddenly she's given birth and the child is very sick and David's crying out to God, Oh God, spare this child, spare this child, spare this child. And the child dies. And that should tell us a lot about the place of prayer, the place of worship and the place of faith and trust in God. Because although David prayed for something, he didn't always get it. And yet God says, this is a man after my own heart. So remember that. Don't think God is the genie in the bottle, and you've just got to rub it hard enough, and we'll call rubbing the bottle hard prayer, and God must do what I do this. <laughs> doesn't work like that. And I know there's plenty of paperback books in Kurong that'll tell you that's how it works. I know that. They, and they sell far more than mine. <laughs> and David is told the child is dead. So David arises, washes his face, and goes to the temple again. And help me out, what does he do? He worships. I can tell the one who's journeyed deeper into Christ that when life gets tough, that's what they do. Rather than a shaking fist at God, it's an open palm. Oh God, I worship you. I don't understand this. I asked you to do this. You didn't. But I know you only ever do what is right. You only ever do what is good. And I worship you. I worship you. And shortly after this, the prophet comes to David 
You see what's happened in David's heart. He's come to go, oh God, I'm sorry. He's blown it. Oh God, I'm sorry. He's blown it. And then finally, Uriah the Hittite, the worst thing he, he, he did, he's blown it. He's come before God, the child he, he worships. Now he trusts God. He's not going to take the reins of his life into his own hands. He worships. He comes back to his palace and sometime after that, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, Thus says the Lord, I'm going to build you a house. A house that means your son will be king and your son's son will be king and your son's son will be king and never will you lack a man to be seated on the throne of Israel. Never. This is my promise to you, says the Lord. Wow. Now, what's David's response? David wasn't born in 1990 and on. If he was, his response would be, Oh, yeah. I knew that was coming because I'm awesome. You see, he was born before 1990. He doesn't talk like that. What does David do? <laughs> Come on, you've got to love me. You don't even got to like me. You've just got to love me. David comes to the temple again. He gets on his knees and he comes before God and he says this, Who am I that you would do such a great thing? And God says, Now, now you're a man after my own heart. Psalm 77 verse... 78 says this, and from that point, David led Israel with integrity. My covenant with David, this section here in Jeremiah from verse 14 down to verse 22 is where we're looking. Come with me. We're in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I've just told you a little bit of that promise. So let's consider this about the promises of God. You see, some people have the attitude that God is locked in cosmic battle with the forces of evil and it is an arm wrestle and God eventually kind of gets the upper hand just for a moment. And Come on, somebody help God out here. Bit of intercession, please. That is, that is crazy theology. You see, our, our prayers aren't helping God out. <laughs> Hopefully our prayers are yielding to the God who's got it all worked out. And so when God makes a promise, he can deliver. And, and it's really important for us to understand this. And I think when we approach Scripture, we need to, when we look at anything in Scripture, is look at, okay, who is God talking to right here? And I'll give you a clue right now. Anything in Jeremiah, he's not talking to you. He's talking to someone, but he's not talking to you. Now, does that mean, well, what are, we do, what are we reading other people's mail for? Because 1 Corinthians 10 says, this right here in Jeremiah was written so that we might draw lessons for life, that, so that we might learn how to live. So there's lessons in this and we need to get it. Now, has God made promises to us? Yeah, I think so. And they're all in the new really in the New Covenant, and there are some in the Psalms. So, but the first thing we need to understand is this. The promises of God are more about God than the promises. And what does the promises of God, 
when we read about these things here, because he's just said, I'm going to keep my promise. Well, that you can go, aha, uh-huh, and you could focus on the promise. But please, focus on the one keeping the promise. So you've got to know God always keeps his promise. If God makes a promise, you can, you can hone in on the promise, but hone in on the God who's made it. Because what it, but God is the God who always works good. He always does right. We're in the next verse, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Interesting that word branch, Hebrew word Nazar. Nazar, and so the, the, the saying came out that he would be a Nazarite uh, rather than someone from Nazareth, a Nazarene. And a Nazarite, you, you might recall, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. It's someone who makes an ultimate commitment to God. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 1 where it says that Messiah um, was known as Jesus of Nazareth, thus fulfilling what the prophet said, that he would be known as a Nazarene, one, who, one that played on this word branch. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. So, in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall ex- execute justice. He shall execute justice. And righteousness in the land. He shall execute justice. That's judgment language. That's what a judge does. A judge hands down judgment. A judge dispenses justice. And righteousness in the land. So who is this righteous branch? Well, we, we now know it is Jesus Christ. And if you've read the epistle to the Romans and in our small groups, we're going through Romans. And as we get into Romans 9, 10 and 11, Paul picks up on this language that Jesus is the branch. Now, we probably like, why branch? Well, what's that got to do with anything? Because we, this is a, a farming audience. This is an audience that understands that if you want to grow something like an olive or, or grapes you have to take a branch and the word is grafted. Do you know, well, you can, but you shouldn't. You can't eat wild apples because for some reason, apples and grapes and there's a whole bunch of other things, they need, you, they, you need to take a branch off a tree and, and cut it, break it, cut it, break it, open up the wound of another tree and put it in there, and they, they, they bandage it together. Jesus is the branch that's grafted into the stump of Jesse, David. And that's the only way you can have an edible apple or a grape that's of any use to anybody, if it's grafted. And Jesus is the righteous branch. He's the righteous branch. What's the word righteous? Does what's right. <laughs> only does what's right. And Jesus Christ ministers true justice it says here now i know that there's a whole bunch of people that please hey i've already offended everybody born after 1990 so well i'll just add to the list here we go there's a whole bunch of people that have a picture of jesus as being nice long flowing hair probably spent most of the morning um what do you call it straightening it (laughs) product in it is the part in the middle james is the part in the middle (laughs) goes out in the breeze flicking it back like Fabio walking down (laughs) 
You know, the last picture we get of Jesus in the Bible is he's riding a horse. In his right hand, he's got a sword. His garment is hitched up because he's riding a horse. And we get to see he's tattooed. And it says his hands are pierced. And his sword's got blood on it. And he's got a tattoo. Do you know we worship a pierced, tattooed saviour? <laughs> and he's riding a horse. And he's angry. Now, please, this is not the... This is not the picture I want you to go to sleep tonight with of Jesus. But, but this is the picture we're presented in the book of Revelation before he carries out justice. It's, it, it should just smash this whole myth that Jesus is insipid and weak and unable to take a stand. Because that's not the picture. The final presentation of Christ. We read this in Revelation chapter 19. The final picture of Christ is that he's the one who restores ultimate peace. We have him coming in and executing justice. And then there's peace. Judgment in chapter 20 and peace. And Revelation chapter 21 says Christ will be seated on the throne and from that point, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. Why? Because the righteous branch will be ruling and reigning over all. And I say, bring it on. Bring it on. By the way, I think Revelation 19 was fulfilled. Uh, I can unpack that later for you. Now is not the time. So Jesus Christ is a strong, righteous saviour. Not a mamsy, pamsy, decaf, soy latte, sipping on the sidewalk product in the hair, Jesus. Come on, you've got to love me. <laughs> Next verse. Verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. So the city will be called this name. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Sitkenu, the Hebrews. Yahweh Sitkenu, the Lord our righteousness. The city will be known by the name of Jesus. In the same way that when you give your life to Jesus, you are known by the name of Jesus. That's why it says in Colossians, everything you do now, you must do in the name of Jesus. You're an ambassador. You represent Jesus. You have diplomatic immunity with heaven. Awesome. Oh, you, obviously, you've got to think that one through. But it is awesome that we have peace with God. We represent heaven on earth. Awesome. Now, Romans 11.26 says, Thus all Israel will be saved. Now, here's the point. If you're connected to the righteous branch, I just gave you a picture before of uh, if we were to look at Israel, tree, duh, 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 Solomon, duh, gets, and then Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son comes, Israel gets cut off, then there's a stump. It, the picture of Israel is a stump, and out of the stump grows a shoot. This is Isaiah 11 verse 1. And out of that, that shoot arises this branch that's grafted in, and the branch is the shoot, the root of the stump of Jesse, it says in the book of Revelation. That's Jesus. And then it says this, 
if you give your life to Jesus, in Romans it says this, you will be like a wild branch that's grafted into Jesus. You'll be grafted into Jesus. Are you grafted into Jesus? Has he picked you up from the dirt? Has he taken you? Has he cut you, broken you, put you into the wound of Jesus and made you one with him? That's what it means to be a Christian. And the Bible says this is the picture of Israel. And that tree that Paul describes in Romans 9, 10 and 11, he says that's the real Israel, the real children of God, the real people of God. And those people will be saved. They'll all be saved. If you have given your life to Jesus and you go, well, have I done enough? Come on. You need to get a picture of what Christ has done for you, not what you have to do for him. He's done it for you. He's grafted you in. You're connected to him. Therefore, those who are connected to Christ are the true Israel. Galatians chapter 6 says this. Peace be under the true Israel of God. He's talking about the church. So those who are connected to Jesus Christ are eternally saved. Eternally saved. Does that mean, oh, cool. You mean, Pastor, let me get this right. I'm going to heaven. If I give my life to Jesus, no matter what I do, I'm going to heaven. Cool. Oh, okay. What can I get up to? And Paul addresses that in Romans, doesn't he? Where he says, hang on a minute. If you're going to idolize sin above Jesus, then you don't really get Jesus. It just shows that you haven't been grafted in. If you love anything more than Jesus, including your own sin more than him, you don't get it. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now this is a little verse, but it has a big implication. It shows why Jesus Christ had to be both born of a virgin, because he has to be pure without sin, and yet he had to be born to a virgin who was a direct descendant to King David. And Mary was. And both genealogies mentioned in the New Testament State that very clearly. Uh, Matthew states it and Luke states it. So Mary wasn't just some random girl. She was selected because she was the descendant of King David. That's why Jesus was born through her. Next verse, verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. Now, this is clearly not saying that right now in heaven, animals are being sacrificed and Jesus is doing it. It's saying that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he made the ultimate sacrifice. It was the ultimate sacrifice. And the Levites now no longer need to do what Levites do because Jesus Christ has done it all. He is our high priest who has paid the ultimate sacrifice. Now, how serious is God about Fulfilling this, he says this, verse 19. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, um, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Uh, verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant 
and the Levitical priests who ministered to me. If we had the time, we'd unpacked it in First Peter. He says, when you gave your life to Christ, you became a royal priesthood. You became a priest before God and you offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. That's your duty now. Notice this verse. All those connected to Jesus are spiritually descended from David. Notice how many it says will be. A host of heaven that cannot be numbered as much as the grains of sands on the sea cannot be measured. I will multiply offspring to David. This is where we're going to finish up this section here. Because if you have a, a concept that Jesus is is going to have an insipid, weak, dying, dwindling church at the end of the age. You do not understand the promise of God to Jesus that he will save people to the uttermost ends of the earth. He will have a glorious church. He will have a church that triumphs. He will take his spirit and place it on young men and give young men boldness to stand up in the marketplace, in the arena, to declare, thus says the Lord, not just today, tomorrow, in years to come. God is going to do it. God will keep his promise. He will have a glorious church. And there's the promise. Does that apply to us? You bet it does. Do we want to be a part of it? Well, you absolutely bet you we do. Jesus Christ is in the business right now of saving the lost and giving them a royal identity. It's not just being connected to David spiritually. It's being connected to King David. That's why the Bible says in 1 Peter, you belong to Jesus. You are a part of a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. What an identity. So Jesus Christ is in the business of saving the lost and giving them a royal identity. And here's the question. Is that your identity? Have you said, Jesus, I don't have all my questions answered. I still got some questions, but I've got the main ones answered. I know that you are who you claim to be. I know that you died on the cross in my place. And I know that you're word describes my condition before you and it says I need to surrender my life to you if you can answer those ones the rest is detail trust me it's detail and if you if you are saying I don't know who I am I don't know where I'm going in life I don't know what my life is about give your life to Jesus give your life to Jesus he's in the business of saving people and giving them an identity and here's my final question here it is if that's the business jesus is in what business are you in i want to be in this business because we want to see the verse that we read in jeremiah that god will have a multitude that cannot be counted as part of the descendants of king david belonging to jesus christ Amen. My covenant with David. You could say that God has the memory of an elephant. He just doesn't forget. The only thing that will make him break his promise to David is if we can somehow stop day and night coming at there a lot of times. And let's face it, that can't happen. So God's promise stands. More from Dr. Corbett next week, a covenant with day and night. 
Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, My Covenant with David, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is the pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.